there, this is Poduck Fancast, a podcast about the Poduck saga created and hosted by us. My name is Rita, I live in England, I tumble at Princess of Poduck and I tweet at Rita Bites. And I'm Michelle, I live in the States, I can be found on Tumblr at Poldark Muses and I tweet at Musings. And thanks for joining us uh, today in this week's podcast. We will be recapping episode two of season five that aired this past Sunday on BBC One. So, this is your obligatory spoiler warning. We will be getting pretty detailed, especially in our recap. So if you are averse to that kind of thing, please come back after you've seen the episode. This podcast will still be here. (laughs) As for the rest of us, let's begin, as always, with a recap of the episode. Mm-hmm. Now, the episode began with Demelza, Jeremy, and Clarence arriving in London to greet Ross. For the rest of the episode, they will be sharing their lodgings with Ned and Kitty Despard to very comical effect. It is cramped as hell in there, people. So much so <laughs> that Jeremy and Clarence are sleeping with Moby and Daddy, which unfortunately for us limits the amount of hanky panky they can get up to. Bouch, wow, <laughs> Uh, sorry. Maybe next week. One can dream. Um, meanwhile, George has also arrived in London and appears to have regained his wits again. Enough to take business meetings with Ralph, bad guy cliche Hansen. Hansen is looking to expand his mahogany empire and needs an injection of cash to fund buying more land and, of course, more free labor, otherwise known as slaves. Asshole. When asked if that would be a problem, George is like, why would it be? Barf, barf, barf. Now, as you will remember from last week's episode, Ned was released from prison, not because he was found innocent, but because of Ross's shady dealings with a Mr. Wickham. Not that Mr. Wickham. He's a free man, but he's still living under a cloud of mistrust, and he is dying to restore his good name and his position back to the upper echelons of society. After all, he was a freaking governor, Ross, thinking that he, quote, owes, end quote, Ned for saving his life, decides it's his duty to try and help him. Their plan is to find his former secretary, a Mr. Valentine, to speak up for Ned and vouch for his good character. Slight problem. Mr. Valentine has gone missing since they arrived in London. Cue a montage of Ross talking to some extras and looking very disappointed. Turns out for a spy, he's not really very good at gathering intel. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jeffrey Charles has done what any wealthy child with no concept of money or debt would do and taken out a bunch of credit in order to become a redcoat. And a dashing one at that. And now that he has his coat, he is ready to put it to use in charming the ladies. Well, one specific lady, Cicely Henson. They've run into each other and do some flirting. She invites him to Vauxhall that night. Back in Cornwall, Sam runs into Morwenna and thinks she might be pregnant, which is awkward. Drake explains that his wife isn't actually sleeping with him because of that trauma inflicted on her. And then they hug. So it's Vauxhall Pleasure Garden time. Woo! Uh, and I think Mammoth Screen have been listening to our podcast because they have clearly <laughs> doubled their extras budget for this location <laughs> from half a dozen to a full dozen people. Wow. Woohoo! 
Splash that cast. Anyway, Ross, Demelza, Caroline, Dwight, Kitty, and Ned arrive, and immediately there is tension and staring from the other patrons who whisper traitor when Ned walks past and gawk at Kitty, mistaking her for a courtesan. Assholes. Demelza, who, bless her heart, seems to only have just discovered that racism is a thing, is appalled. They run into Ralph, bad to the bone Hansen, and when he throws some shade about Kitty not being unfamiliar with contempt, Ned loses his shit and threatens to punch him. (laughs) A crowd forms around them and everything is very public, so Kitty defuses the situation. If she's a better woman than I, I'd have let him crown the man. I would have helped. How does that serve his cause? And as ever, Dwight is the hero we need but don't deserve. Also at Vauxhall are Jeffrey Charles and Cecily Hansen, who has run away from her poor lady's maid. God, those poor, those lady's maids really have it rough. Um, let's see. So she's run away to go flirt some more. Uh, the issue of who Cecily can and cannot marry comes up. She says her papa will be directing her in that endeavor. Jeffrey Charles does not approve and insists that she should choose instead and that he would be willing to tell her papa so. Conveniently, papa is also at Vauxhall. Cecily dares him to go and say so to his face. Jeffrey Charles, being young and therefore dumb, goes nervously up towards Ralph, baby killer Hansen, but is, thank God, saved by Uncle Ross, rescuing him again and telling him he should absolutely avoid that man. Good advice for once. I know, right? Over at Shea Willegan, George is preparing for his big day at court by yelling at his valet for being shit at tying cravats and hallucinating Elizabeth, as you do. Dwight is also having a big day, as mentioned in last week's episode. Your boy is now a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, and he's giving a lecture on the causes and treatments of insanity. Topical. As we intercut with scenes of Sir George's knighting, Dwight tells the college that he doesn't consider insanity a moral failing, but an affliction, and goes on to call out a lot of the current treatments for for their brutality and lack of humanity. You know, pissing off his fellow doctors. When talk turns to that of James Hadfield, the man who attempted to shoot the king in last week's episode, Dwight makes the very reasonable assumption that because Hadfield has sustained a series of traumatic head injuries, that he might not be entirely of sound mind, which obviously intrigues Hadfield's lawyer and he asks Dwight to testify on his behalf. (laughs) Meanwhile, Ross receives a note from Mr. Valentine asking Ross to meet him ASAP. They meet and he reveals that the accusations against Ned are unfounded. Of course we knew that. But his opposition to slavery and his subsequent feeding, educating, and allocating of land to free slaves was undermining the entire structure of the Honduras colony and the fortunes of the colonists. Oh, dear. I can't be having that. (laughs) No. Um, Ask if he is willing to testify to this. Mr. Valentine responds. You must be aware sir that the vested interests which have conspired to crucify our friend if i or you attempt to go against them you've no idea what they're capable of hmm foreshadowing uh seeing no other option ross visits mr wickham not that mr wickham and begs for his intervention Wickham explains that with the current state of affairs in Britain, in other words, a populace 
on the verge of revolt, mob violence, and attempts on the king's life, uh, he cannot help a radical such as Ned, and Ross is forced to leave with his tail between his legs. Demelza, meanwhile, runs into Geoffrey, Charles, and Cecily out in Hyde Park. They've escaped Cecily's chaperone again and are playing cards on the riverbank. Demelza, who has a bit of a history of supporting young lovers against the wishes of their guardians with tragic consequences, <laughs> chooses to keep their secret but makes them promise to be more discreet. I don't see that happening. No. On her way back, she feels a presence in the trees and begins to suspect she's being followed, which of course she is. Back in Cornwall... Tess has also lost her damn mind and is going through Demelza's trunk of clothes and twirling around with them. Garrick, forever a good boy, begins growling at her. Back off, bitch. <laughs> she insists that it suits her better. And that's not the only thing of Demelza's that suits. Mm-hmm. So the clock is officially ticking on this fatal attraction subplot. Still in Cornwall, Drake and Morwenna are walking on the cliffs when they run into Valentine. You know, our little Valentine. Uh, Valentine, like Cecily, seems pretty adept at escaping from supervision. And when Morwenna asks what his papa would say, he brings up that his papa has promised to bring back mama. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Over in London, Ross received a note from... Mr. Valentine, senior, with a written statement exonerating Ned's character. Ross decides to publish the letter into a pamphlet so he can circulate it amongst sympathetic MPs. Demelza, Kitty and Caroline band together and instead pass the pamphlets out in Hyde Park. <laughs> um, it's time for the Hadfield trial. He pleads not guilty on the grounds of insanity. Dwight gives his testimony, explaining that James Hadfield, a former soldier, had sustained not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, but eight blows to the head with a saber and in the service of the crown. Four of these blows were enough to cause permanent and irreversible brain damage. Hadfield's lawyer presents 30 witnesses who can testify to his change of character following his injuries. The judge decides that the evidence is overwhelming, halts the trial, and acquits Hadfield, which, of course, causes quite the stir in the gallery. However, because he is seen as a danger still, Hadfield is sent to Bedlam Royal, Bethlehem Royal Hospital, or Bedlam, as it is better known. So while Ross is handing out his pamphlets at Westminster, he runs into Sir George, instead of just letting him pass, decides to bring up the subject of paying for Geoffrey Charles's military position, which I already figured was done. Ugh. Like, he's already in debt, mate. Anyway, George yeah. is like, yeah. I've said no, why are we still talking about this? And yet again, Ross makes the <laughs> mistake of mentioning Elizabeth, because it went so well last week. Not cool, bro. Mm -hmm. What do you know of my wife? You were nothing to her, an irrelevance, and to me. So that night, when you said, see what we have brought her to, what did you mean? That we had been the death of her, between your inability to let her go, and my unfounded suspicions, we hounded her to an early grave. I take my share of the blame, take yours. I'll just hand Jack Farthing that BAFTA now, shall I? 
Yes, please. Yes, please. He's killing me this season. Uh, speaking of Elizabeth, Lord knows that's all we do this season. Jeffrey Charles is watching a young boy playing with his mother. They're playing swords and has a flashback to when he was a child playing with Elizabeth along the cliffs of Cornwall. Soppy music plays in the background and he cries softly to himself until he is come upon by Cecily. She sits with him and they bond over their respective dead mommy issues. Actually, it's a really lovely scene where you can see a real connection form. And Lord help us, we are already rooting for these crazy kids. Unfortunately for us and them, Caroline and Demelza are plotting to separate them and protect them from the inevitable heartbreak by taking Jeffrey Charles back to Cornwall. Following his encounter with Ross, a visibly shaken Sir George goes to Ralph Puppykicker Hansen's home to sign some contracts and officially become a mahogany investor. Slave trader. While there, they discuss the circulating pamphlet about Ned, and Ralph reveals his plans to spread rumours about Ross, claiming he is part of a plot to kill the king. Even George thinks he's going a bit far, so you know Ralph is the baddest of all the baddies. When it comes time for signing the contract, George's subconscious manifests another hallucination of Elizabeth, who's like, don't do this, George. And when he starts talking to her in front of Hanson, Uncle Carrie is forced to grind their meeting to a halt, leaving the contract unsigned. Uncle Carrie then sticks George, who is still talking to imaginary Elizabeth, on the first coach back to Cornwall before anyone else sees him. <laughs> Nighttime in Ross and Demelza's lodgings, and they're discussing the fact that Demelza handed out more pamphlets than Ross intended. Ross looks a little horrified at the thought that there were more circulating than he intended. Dude, you left a whole slew of them at home <laughs> before you went out and... You know your girl likes to go out and, you know... She's a do-gooder, you know. Yeah, she is. He worries that they may have horribly exposed the government and may have made even bigger enemies than they had before, which all turns out not to be an ill-founded worry. The next day, he is called to meet Wickham again, not that Wickham, who has a copy of the pamphlet on his desk. Ross has some splaining to do. Wickham explains that had Ross been patient, which is not a quality Ross is known for, Ned Despar could have been returned to his post and gone on with his life quietly. Instead, Ross's intervention has drawn more attention to an, quote, unfortunate situation, and now they require that he, Ross make amends. We cut to a very mysterious scene of Ralph Bad Boy Bad Boy Hansen talking to a shadowy figure who's holding a falcon casually. You know, it's like something out of a really bad Bond movie. <laughs> Ballantyne should pay for this treachery. Ross is apparently going to, quote, make amends by spying on Ned and Kitty for the crown. And I called it! Yeah. Yes, you did! Which obviously makes him uncomfortable. He says he has no intention of actually doing it, but he still isn't going to tell Ned what he's been asked to do. And I'm telling you right now, that won't end well. Now, because George didn't sign those darn contracts, Ralph, Evil Witch of the West, Hanson, 
now has to follow him all the way to Cornwall so he can get his money. And he's going to be dragging his daughter Cecily with him. He expects her to complain, but of course she doesn't, because she's dying to see her new boyfriend. Who she sees almost immediately after stepping into the only pub in Truro. Actually, the entire cast is there. <laughs> and they witness another awkward confrontation between Ned and Ralph, who are apparently willing to fight anywhere in the world. Honduras! London, now Cornwall. Also newly arrived in Cornwall is George, who has brought home hallucination Lizzie, baffling poor Valentine who expected his mama and instead gets to watch his Uncle Carrie amble out of the carriage. Never thought we'd say this, but poor Uncle Carrie is dealing with a lot. George is deteriorating and is taken to rambling about in his nighty and asking where Elizabeth is. Someone get him some help! Uh, not Dr. Choke. Now the episode ends with the entire Poldark clan and friends having a massive picnic on a sun-soaked beach. The kids and Garrick frolic in the sand while Ross and Demelza talk about how relieved they are that they're home and that London cannot touch them. <laughs> Intercut is a scene of Mr. Valentine's dead body washing up on a beach shore, so... <laughs> <laughs> They're not exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Bless no. them. Oh my god. So, Rita, did you like the episode? I did. You know, it was a bit slow. More of a, a slow burner than last week's episode. And, you know, some of the London scenes felt a bit claustrophobic. But I think that was very purposeful. And I'm really enjoying some of the themes that we are being established this season you know mental health slavery even some women's rights and the notion of patriotism which you know they were all very much issues of the regency period and yet they're still very relevant today and i have to applaud debbie horsfield she's been very clever in the way she's chosen these threads and she, you know some of them are in the later novels and she's like crafted a narrative that will engage people in 2019 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I was initially kind of meh about the whole thing uh, my first time through, but my subsequent rewatches, and yes, there's a plural there because I rewatched it twice, um, had the episode really growing on me. Um, Gads, I'm a sucker for a Regency-era costume drama. I am. Um, and I love how all the historical stuff we talked about last week has really come to fruition in the storyline. Uh, speaking of all the historical stuff we talked about, <laughs> I have even more. <laughs> oh, this boy. Let's get down to it, folks. Uh, name drop of the episode goes to Cecily for referencing A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. Written in 1792, it's one of the earliest work, earliest works, earliest works of feminist philosophy, Mowage, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> in it, Wollstonecraft responds to theorists of the 18th century who did not believe women should receive an education. She argues that women ought to have an education equivalent to their position in society, claiming that women are essential to the nation because they educate its children and because they could be companions to their husbands rather than mere wives. Instead of viewing women as ornaments to society or property to be traded in marriage, Wollstonecraft maintains that they are human beings deserving of the same fundamental rights as men. Crazy! I know! So also in this week's episode, Dwight gave a lecture on the causes and treatments for insanity. 
Now, attitudes to mental health have come a very long way. The popular view in ancient cultures was that madness was caused by evil spirits and possession. In the Bible's Old Testament, or the Jewish Torah, evil spirits and divine punishments were considered causes of mental disorders. So by the time we get to medieval times, the idea that persisted was that saints and martyrs' remains and relics could cure followers. And that is how people treated mental illness. Bonkers. Now, during the Renaissance, there was an age of enlightenment where scientific practices were established, which caused some tensions between the religious culture of the time and doctors of the day. No. <laughs> By the time we reached the 18th century, most people adopted a medical perspective on madness and saw it as rooted in the same general kind of pathology as illnesses. Unfortunately, this led to attempts to remedy mental illness using medical experiments that might now be described as torture. Some particularly bizarre methods were designed to give people near-death experiences. It was noticed that there were old stories dating back even to Roman times of people who had been shipwrecked as a result of nearly drowning had recovered their wits. These were people who had previously been mad. The hypothesis led to dental patients being put in cages and lowered into water. When the bubbles stopped rising, <laughs> you yanked him or her back up and hoped they had survived the process and been restored to their senses. Oh my god. They also were fond of spinning mental patients until they vomited and emptied their bowels. <sighs> And that's just another example of researchers trying to shock people back to sanity. Uh, at this time, uh, mental asylums also began to pop up, began with an enormous sense of uh, utopian optimism. The asylum is a kind of moral machinery. The idea was that the manipulating the patient's environment and providing a safe and forgiving place for them to be could help restore them to sanity. The start of the 19th century, when the show is set, saw a spurt of mental asylums being built. But within these asylums, experimentation on a very vulnerable population continued with very little supervisation, which is why when Hadfield was sent to Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam as it's called in popular culture, Dwight despaired that it would have been kinder to kill him. <laughs> you know, um, I love, you know, when you said that, um manipulating the patient's environment and providing a safe and forgiving place for them to be, you know, th that is, those are not the words that pop into my head when I think about places like Bedlam. Oh, no. You know? But I mean, bless them. There were good intentions. It's just... You know, people suck. Yeah, it turns out people <laughs> are awful. Yeah. Okay, back to the history. Uh, we also saw a meeting at the Royal College of Surgeons in this week's episode. This institution was founded all the way back in the 14th century when most surgeries were performed by barber surgeons. Yes, the same guy who shaved you was also the one who would perform surgery on you. <laughs> Comforting, no? <clears throat> um, in this period, surgical mortality was obviously very high due to blood loss and infection. <laughs> oh my god. Um, most physicians considered themselves to be above surgery. But until around the turn of the 18th, 19th century, when the show is set, the Royal College of Surgeons was only made royal in 1800, when this show was also set. 
And by the way, there was no way that a woman would have been allowed into one of their lectures, as we saw in the episode. And they would not be allowed to sit for their doctorate exams until 1906. Just another way in which it sucks to be a woman. Uh <laughs> Now, we often talk about the change of fashion of women of the period, but I thought this week we could talk a little bit about how much the men's fashion changed in the Regency period. This was in large part due to the Romantic movement that had swept the country in the late 18th century. Fabrics in general were becoming more practical, silk, wool, cotton and buckskin. Dark colours were all but mandatory, so you've got dark, rich navies that were very in vogue. And white Muslim shirts, usually with those ruffles and white cravats that we all love, they were all extremely popular. Yes. Um, breeches were out, and tight-fitting trousers had taken their place. Now, trousers were the traditional clothing of sailors, but they made their way into the wardrobes of the upper-class men and professionals. Romantic masculinity was expressed through symbolic solidarity with the common man, because that's what the common man wants, y'all. Symbolic solidarity from rich twats who've never worked a day in their life. But I digress. Another change was the rise of the black silk top hat. In these past two episodes, you might have noticed George has definitely embraced these new fashion trends. His previously dandyish outfits have become more understated and refined, and he has gone nowhere without his fancy new top hat. By contrast, Ross is still reusing his tricorn and greatcoat from the previous century. His style has seen less of a transformation, but after all, he was always kind of a man of the people, and he has never worn breeches and wigs popular when this show started decades ago. <laughs> um, I have to share that I reblogged a post from Flow It, Show It on Tumblr, which referred to Ross's hat as Ye Old Manta Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done, Flow It, Show It. Well done. Absolutely. Okay, time for storylines. Ross and Ned. This is actually probably my least favorite storyline currently. <laughs> and yeah, I still think it, it's quite intellectually interesting because you're pitting Ross's incredible loyalty to his friends and what he deems right against his loyalty to the crown and jeopardizing his newfound position of, position of respect in society. And I think that's something that has potential to be fascinating. Yeah, at the moment, I'm finding myself just really annoyed at how reckless Ned is. <laughs> Every five <laughs> seconds, he starts an argument. And I'm really mm -hmm. worrying for Ross, I think. Ned suffers from all of Ross's worst qualities, but with, like, hardly any of the charm. <laughs> He's making a lot of enemies at the moment. And at the end of the episode, he just decided to bury his head in the sand in Cornwall. Uh, hoping that they all go away. That obviously can't last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Uh, we all know Ross is a reckless idiot, but, you know, this is getting ridiculous, Ned. Seriously, chill out, dude. So how about uh, George and Elizabeth's hallucination? Uh, probably the most melodramatic storyline on paper. <laughs> I mean, if you had told <laughs> me this was happening, I would have freaked out. Um, yeah. But it's being written and performed so wonderfully and so sincerely by Jack Farthing that every passing scene is actually breaking my heart. Yeah. And also not just for George, but for Valentine. And yes, even Uncle Carrie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
five out of five tricorns for the storyline, and I can't wait to see where it's headed. <laughs> yes! Uh, the scene where he confronts Ross and about the guilt he has accepted in Elizabeth's death made me mess up my mascara, damn it. I mean, it, it was just to see him, uh, uh, Jack Farthing, with his, like, barely controlled anger and grief and despair confronting Ross, um, it, it was really, really powerful. Now you fucked me up. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I also want us to uh, cast our minds back to the season three finale when Elizabeth and George had that huge confrontation about Valentine's parentage and I accused Elizabeth of gaslighting George into submission. Now, I truly believe that that was a real breaking point in George's psyche and that the true effects are only being seen now. I think this episode reinforced the idea that George's hallucinations are just a coping mechanism to deal with the sense of guilt he has over her death. This really cast a shadow over her character for me because I think her manipulations really crippled her husband and left him unable to deal with reality. As much as the show wants to paint her as an angelic figure, they should be acknowledging that she left a lot of destruction too. Amen. I'm going to put my Pollyanna hat on in hopes that this will finally, finally demonstrate the truth about her character. So what about the Dwight and James Hadfield storyline? I mean, sorry I accidentally Mm. spoiled this storyline last week. (laughs) In all fairness, (laughs) I had no way of knowing this was going to be the plot line. (laughs) But I I obviously really enjoyed it because I love a courtroom scene, so yay. And B... Mm-hmm. Dwight got a storyline of his own. Oh, I know, I know. And, you know, as I mentioned above, uh, I have to completely agree with you on this um, storyline. Really, really well done. Uh, let's see. How about Cecily and Jeffrey Charles and the rumors of the year? I'm a little obsessed with this ship. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Even though having read the books, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to end well for me. I I shouldn't be getting attached. I think these two actors just have great chemistry, but more importantly, I think the dialogue is there to make me believe that they have like a similar sense of humor, a similar outlook on life, and they have this shared loss over their mothers to bond them and like make them great friends at the very least. I'm in part making these points because it's the exact opposite of what I saw in Drake Morwenna when that romance was building, which I think is a vacuum where conversations go to die. <laughs> Honestly, seeing these two, just give me the swoons. Um, ship names, folks? Um, I thought Joff <laughs> Cecily? Joff Cecily? That probably rolls off the tongue a little weird but um i think it's better than sisyphray (laughs) (laughs) oh neither are great options (laughs) i know right i know i know oh god um okay uh shifting back to cornwall uh tess and prudy oh i want to smack tess no no i want prudy to smack tess Mm-hmm. <laughs> these, oh, hell yeah. these short ass scenes felt a little thrown into the episode but they creeped me out and made me scared for Demelza so I guess work done also Tess <laughs> stay away from Sam or I will come into the television and fuck you up 
Oh, you know she will. You know she will. Um, I loathed the way that Tess was eyeing up our poor Sam and how Sam seemed to just kind of be um, undeniably drawn, or his attention at least, um, in her direction. a little scared, though. He was like, what's happening? I know, right? Prudy, do something about this wench. Come on now. You know you have it in you. Caroline had a total of three lines this episode. I'm so pissed off. <laughs> I'm starting to suspect that Debbie Horsfield hates Gabriella Wilde because that is literally the only explanation for her lack of screen time over the course of these two episodes. She's so talented. She deserves something. As much as I love the new characters, when they're giving precedence over a, an established beloved character like caroline then you fucked up also where is horace dude if they've 86 horace this season i will freaking revolt time to pick up a new horace is our king shirt over at the merch shop i say hashtag product product placement <laughs> um i will say that even though it was completely historically ridiculous I love that Caroline was pitching her hubby some questions from the peanut gallery. <laughs> Don't be messing with her bae. Don't be messing with her bae. <laughs> um, so, what was your favorite scene? Oh, so many. Um, but I think my <clears throat> favorite moment of the show was in the courtroom when Dwight was giving his little speech about mental illness and patients having delusions. And <laughs> Uncle Carrie gave the world's slowest and most over-the-top side-eye to George <laughs> sat next to him. I laughed so hard, I almost peed myself. <laughs> oh my god, that was awesome. <laughs> um, I think I have to say the scene with Jeffrey Charles and Cecily when they were remembering their mothers. Um, having lost my own, uh, these kinds of scenes always get me in the guts, especially when they are performed as well as this one was. Uh, GC has always been seen as such a happy-go-lucky lad, so it was nice to see this this other side of his personality. Definitely. What a great find they have in this new actor. I know, right? We love you, Freddie He's Wise. Marvelous. We love you. He's marvelous. Um, what's your least favorite scene? Ah, uh, I mean, I used up all my ability to care about Drake and Mawena's sex life <laughs> last week. This time it felt like overkill. I think, you know, mostly because the action was in London this week. So, you know, hopping back to Cornwall to watch the same scenes again felt like a waste of my time. Yeah, I know um, that, um, you know, it was kind of hard for me to pick a least favorite scene, to be quite honest. Um, I actually kind of like the scenes with Drake and Marwana this week. I know, I know. What has happened to me? I don't You're know. You're a different person. But, um... <laughs> um, but, you know, I... Um, I don't know. I kind of want them to talk about something else now, though. <laughs> like... Yeah, me too. I'm I'm definitely ready for us to kind of move on to, you know, okay, so we know that the, the, the things aren't happening in that wee bitty tiny bed. Uh, Y'all must talk about other things. Yeah, like they're still I mean, married. And, and we like, saw so... them being like yeah. companionable and... Yes. Doing the married things. I don't know. Like, I'm not married. I don't know what you do. Like, prepare breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that, um, you know, the, the start of that scene that we saw on the cliffs was really sweet. Um, you know, the two of them walking along the cliffs 
um, singing, um, and just really enjoying one another's company. That was really sweet. And then, you know, she tripped. That guy was always tripping. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, performance of the week. Uh, Jack Farthing is going to get this every week, isn't he? (laughs) Simply phenomenal work. Uh, But I also want to shout out the kid that played Valentine, who is pretty amazing in that scene with Morwenna on the clifftop. For such a young child, he was like, there were cracks in his voice, and I was like, welling up yeah oh yeah um he's really fantastic um you know the scene when he comes running out of Trenwith when his father's um coach is pulling up and you see just how excited he was um and then how confused he was when you know his father says look who I brought home um and all the only thing that Valentine sees is Uncle Carrie. Um, and you know, we see him kind of turn, um, and the look on his face is just complete confusion. And, you know, he's a really young kid. And for him to be able to convey these, you know, pretty subtle, um, and the crunching you hear is my idiot cat. I couldn't bear to kick him out today. Jack, come on. Um, Anyway, back to Valentine. To, to be able to see him uh, perform such complex emotions was really, really fantastic. Um, I thought that it was really wonderful to see Morwenna's face light up with love and concern over Valentine um, during that scene on the cliffs. I, I really thought that was lovely. Um, since you've already tagged Jack's performance, uh, let me say I thought the sword fighting scene was particularly well done. Now, you've seen a lot of those, and the choreography that 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 uh, they had in that scene was was very very well done. Um, so, how many tricorns uh, would you give out of five? Four tricorns. You know, it's still a very good episode, but I think the show could have benefited from focusing only on London and less on Cornwall to make it seem slightly less disjointed. I gave it three on our survey because I did that, you know, right immediately after our uh, my first watch. Um, but I'll give it a solid four um, here on the show today. Really, really enjoyed it. Speaking of our survey, um, on Twitter, 40% of you gave it five tricorns, which is a bit down from last week. Uh, four tricorns got 32%. Three tricorns was 11%, and two tricorns was 16%. Ooh. Hmm. Wow. Very interesting. And I know we got a couple of comments uh, from you all about um, some disappointments that you had, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Um, Meanwhile, uh, we're going to trip on over to Critics Corner. Uh, Again, we have gone overly long on the show, so... We'll just include one quote from the Guardian's Viv, sorry, Viv Groskop this week. Uh, quote, Pewter Tankard Award for Bonkers Brilliance as Supporting Actor. Take the stand, Dr. Ennis. This was the most entertaining of its anachronistic wokeness. The true character of insanity is not wild frenzy or raving madness, but delusion. Dr. Dwight always speaks his mind and protects the underdog, even if the medical information he spouts would not remotely have been available in the early 19th century. But thank goodness he is investigating the cause and treatments of insanity when so many people around seem to be afflicted. 
Uh, Dr. Ennis has always been useful in advancing both plot and characterization, and here he is playing a double role, examining the king's would-be assassin and giving us an insight into Sir Evil George's hallucinations. Plus, we know from a previous series from the previous series that he has had his own brushes with PTSD and grief after the loss of a child. It's a double whammy. Um, Dr. Ennis is anxiety case study and mental health ally rolled into one. I enjoy his sincerity and his lovely face. We need a lot more Cindy doll, though. Agreed. <laughs> Agree. Give us more Caroline! <sighs> now it's time for the book section. But before we begin, we just want to thank everyone for getting in touch. We've been overwhelmed with all your messages and emails. Thank you so much. We don't have time to read them all out every week unless you'd like a seven-hour podcast. And believe me, I don't want to edit that. But do read them all. So we really appreciate all of you getting in touch. So out on Twitter, uh, Paul Darkey uh, said, Well, I must admit I am seriously contemplating some history research after that episode. I need to know more about Ned and Kitty Despard. Uh, So much political intrigue. Also, delving into the mental illness issue, I applaud. Lessons to be learned even in this day and age. Uh, Preach it. Um, And Jack Farthing, I bow to your brilliance. Oh my god, I feel giddy in anticipation of more. My favorite scene was the discussion with George and Ross. George being honest for the first time in five series. I loved it. Um, I take my part of the blame. You take yours. Yas! Uh, Luke Norris is equally amazing. I can't imagine during that time how difficult it would be to address colleagues and convince them of head trauma being the cause of mental incapacitation. Uh, Dr. Ennis and his lovely wife, our heroes. Um, I will end with my being slightly disappointed in the lack of Romel's romance, but I do like seeing their strength as a couple, their closeness with their children. And Demelza saying, London cannot touch us when back in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. This has been an interesting ride. Debbie Horsfield has taken us on. I'm still in. So over on Instagram, we had some more messages. Uh, Rom- Romate? Rummy Zizi. <laughs> Rummy Zizi said, I'm still very disappointed so far. I particularly dislike the pantomime villain. I can't even remember his name. How dare you forget Ralph. Ralph is very important. Um, and Demel's evil. Recalcitrant. That's a great word. Recalcitrant yes. new servant. Oh, wow. I've never had to say that word before. So I was like... I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, They're caricatures rather than characters. I also dislike the new storyline for George. I would just like to have the Poldark I enjoyed so much back again. Jane M. Turner 21 said, very disappointed with the series so far, which is so sad because I'd loved the previous seasons. Terrible shame to have Poldark come to an end this way. Not a patch on Winston Graham's books. Of course, I can understand why, but still... Very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, FP1171 said, I am really enjoying the series so far with the referencing of actual historical issues and the energy of the Despards who have given us a new man-child. <laughs> <laughs> However, as the series progresses, I hope the emphasis returns to the core cast 
as it is their personal stories I wish to see and their ultimate happiness that is important to me. Yeah. Fazutsu, I hope I said that right. Fazutsu underscore store said, it was such a beautiful episode. The clothes are exquisite. I love the historical referencing too. Imagine Mary Wollstonecraft was mentioned. Yes. Smiley face. Fantastic episode. It had everything in it. Bring on episode three. So over on Tumblr, we got more messages. Um, first one, Zoe Reed says, in the words of Frenchie from the classic Greece, the gang is back together again. <laughs> <laughs> At least I think that's what she said. <laughs> it's such a joy to have your product commentary back in my feed with hilarious recaps, historical mini lessons, and well-formed opinions. I hope you find another period piece when we have to say goodbye to the pilchards and we are whatevers and mind the details of another novel slash so. Outlander, perhaps. They wear tricorns and go shirtless too. Smiley, winky face. P.S. <laughs> I'm guessing that Tess is a baddie. My theory is that a poor person's hair on a period show determines their character. Prettily messy, a la Rosina, Emma and the Khan boys, equals good. Stringy or greasy... George's thugs, Ozzy, Tess equal baddie. The exception to the rule is Zaki. <laughs> Yay, Zaki. Um, and I believe we'll see him next week. <gasps> I missed him. I know, me too. Me too. Him and his beard. <laughs> uh, Londonista59 said, This season I need to do a double watch. First watch live and try to keep up with all the action and intrigue. Second watch and it all starts to make more sense. Best bits, Ross and Ned sore fighting. Yes, Aiden looked uh, fantastic. And yes, he did. Uh, and Garrick barking at yes. Tess. <laughs> Love him protecting the mistress even when she's away. Worst bit, wig gate. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Ross, when, wa- bleh, when Ross is sitting, listening to Dwight's testimony, it's like the entire wig moved back on his head. <laughs> <laughs> And could the Cornish beach scene been a little longer? Yeah. And, you know, it's like everybody was like, relax. This is Michelle speaking. Uh, You know, everybody was relaxing and enjoying themselves. And there's Ross with his great big giant great coat on. (laughs) Why doesn't he have that thing off? I mean, I know that it's his kind of like hero cape kind of thing, but it it just looked a little. I think Aiden was Um, probably freezing. It was like January. (laughs) (laughs) True enough. True enough. Okay, back to Londonista's comments. And, oh, and this gem taken from the Guardian's review, Tess Trigwidden channeling the single white female wishes of every female in the land, ransacking Demelza's dressing up box as she muttered, tis not the only thing of hers do sit better on me. Lol! Oh my god. Oh god. Damn! The girl is the girl is looking for a little bit of Ross. Mm-hmm. God, stay away from him. Yes. <laughs> uh, our next message was from Carolite Wild. Um, I really enjoyed this past episode. The plot was engaging and interesting, and I had a good laugh over the creeping man following Ross and Demelza around with his big <laughs> evil coat. Uh, Jack Farthing once again is a powerhouse, and I have to mention the couple goals of Caroline asking questions at Dwight's lecture again great episode (laughs) um another one from anonymous do you agree with george when he said that ross was unable to let go of elizabeth or do you think that he was just george's sense that's just george's sense of things i felt like ross did let go of her when he met her in the church 
Uh, I agree with you. I think that, 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 you know, he kind of detached from, you know, the, the whole, Oh, my first love kind of thing. When they had their meeting at the church, he's always going to carry, um, an affection for her. But I think that, you know, it was kind of like he waved the white flag at that point. Um, Rita, what do you think? I disagree. I think if Ross had let go of her, he wouldn't have a shown up at Elizabeth's house when she's dying <laughs> and B walked up into the room and C kissed her <laughs> dramatically while her husband is grieving downstairs. I think as much as he disengaged from her life, thinking that it was probably for the best for his marriage, he didn't let go in the sense that he is still up in there emotionally thinking he has a right to intervene in Elizabeth's life at every turn. Even in death, he is going up to George and telling George what Elizabeth would have wanted. You weren't married to her! (laughs) Why am I still so angry about this? (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know, man. But, you know, you're scaring me! (laughs) I don't think he will ever let go, even in death. He is, like, attached to her. Like, part of his psyche is obsessed with her, and he's never letting it go. I don't think he's in love with her or anything. I just think he's, like, he's so stubborn that he will keep pretending he's the most important person in Elizabeth's life forever. (laughs) Leave George alone! Okay, I'm going to move on because, you know, we could wind up talking about this forever. I'm having a real breakdown here. You you really are. So I'm going to move along. Uh, (laughs) uh, Single Scripture says, hi, girls, loving the podcast. While there wasn't as much action in this episode, I still like where it's going. George's continued descent into madness is unsettling. And I never thought I would say this. Heartbreaking. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk, a lot of talk this week about Romelza losing their romantic spark. I disagree. There have been some really tender moments in the last episode that show the depth of feeling in the relationship and the focus on the Poldark family underlines how much Ross has to lose if things go awry. Totally agree Oh my agree god, that you. scene when they both started totally giggling in bed because they had the two kids between I them. I know! That's so sweet. I know! That was so sweet. That was so sweet. And the scene where... You know, Ross uh, learns of Demelza um, and the the gal crew peppering London with all of the uh, broadsheets. Um, you know, the look of kind of kind of horror, like what happened? <laughs> you know, instead of <laughs> instead of you know losing his temper or anything along those lines, you know, he he goes um, very far to reassure her that, that everything's going to be okay. And, um, the embrace that they share, uh, at the end of that scene is really, really lovely. Damn it. So over in emails, we, uh, had one from Jane. She sent us a, quite a long email. Sorry, I can't read all of it out, but my favorite part of it was, um, Tess, I hope you're not a bunny boy, love. <laughs> <laughs> Was she mirroring Demelza opening the trunk and finding the blue dress? She also held up the green dress from London. I thought it was borrowed from Caroline in the show. Did Demelza forget to return it? (laughs) What else does she want to take from Queen Demelza? I was beyond thrilled that Garrick did doggy acting again, protecting our queen. You go tinkle on Tess. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love me some Garrick and can't get it off. Oh, I love Garrick. Aww. Love Garrick. Yes. Uh, Lauren sent us an email. It says, uh, it's great to have you back and commenting on the new season. It's like meeting up with old friends. So thank you for all the work you put into the podcast and the analysis. You're welcome. Um, Rita does most of the work. I, I just kind of sit here and blather from time to time. But, oh, uh, but it's so enjoyable. <laughs> Um, let's see, she, she goes on to say, I'm in the States and still have to wait to see the new season, but I've read all the books, so I wasn't worried about spoilers. However, I wonder how you feel about all of the departures from the book in the new season. Keep up the good work and thank you. Um, I'm actually okay. Uh, I was really, really freaking worried, um, <laughs> about kind of where this whole thing was going to go. Um, and I think uh, made that quite clear during um, our previous podcasts. Uh, but, you know, I have to admit that I'm really enjoying it. You know, I I do have an affinity for fan fiction. <laughs> so there's a part of me that, that feels like, you know, this is some really, really damn fine fan fiction that, that we're seeing. And so... Um, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I think that they've done a great job weaving in some of the things that are referenced in, um, the later books, um, uh, into, and making that, uh, live and breathe, uh, during this season. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay with it. How about you, Rita? Same, you know, I was dubious, but I think by having it in the 10 year gap, what it does is, mm -hmm. I can just pretend that, hey, maybe some of this did happen. What do I know? Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, if they ever do get back to doing the later books, I don't think anything has been really changed or, like, ruined by this, like, fanfic season. You know, I'm just, you know, enjoying it for what it is. And, you know, I really like fanfic where people fill in gaps. <laughs> maybe that's why I like yes. this. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Grace says, Hi, girls. Uh, whilst watching 501, I spotted several references back to the first scenes of Poldark in 2015 and wondered if you would spot them too. In your last podcast, Michelle referred to the scene with Ross lying injured on the ground with dead soldiers all around him, shown in 101 and 501. Then there's the look Demelza gave Tess that Rita said reminded her of Demelza in her urchin street days. I also spotted that when Demelza goes to hire Tess as a servant, she says the identical words that she said to Ginny in series one. That would be most convenient. However, this time she is a very confident mistress instead of the timid ex-scullery maid with Ross encouraging her to speak up. I didn't notice that. That is so sweet. Great. I know. Um, I thought this showed just how much Demelza has matured as a character. Amen. Um, another scene that took me right back to series one was Ross and Demelza arriving outside Trenwith. Ross stood outside alone in episode 101, looking up the win at the windows lit up in the evening. And now 501, when he paused to look up to the house, he had Demelza by his side, taking his hand. Um, in 502, there was just a quick reminder of the blue dress when Tess pulled it out of the trunk. Um, I am enjoying this series more than I thought I would. I think it's the relief of not being disappointed when they don't stick to the books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like what we were talking about. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do wonder what Winston Graham would make of it, as he did not allow the BBC to continue the series in the 1970s. Um, however, I think he would approve of the history and politics because his later books are full of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, and uh, even if the quality of the Poldark series goes up and down, the Poldark fan cast remains an entertaining hour of listening. <laughs> oh, thank Thanks. you. Oh, that's so great. What a great email. <laughs> there, there are so many callbacks to the first season this year. A parallel mm-hmm. I haven't seen many people talk about is uh, Ross's desperation to get Jim out of jail in season one and his subsequent failure mm-hmm. versus season five when he gets Ned out without tragedy because he now has the power and connections to do so. What, like, oh, as yeah. much as Demelza has also changed a lot, Ross has as well. I know. I... He had some dips in season two, <laughs> but he has matured and has a lot more of a practical outlook on things. Yes. Thank God. Yes. Good Lord. And what all it has taken for him to get there. Um, <laughs> one of the other um, kind of lookbacks that I, you know, I know I saw um, a couple of gift sets uh, about which you know, of course, made my heart melt all over the place was the scene where Ross and Demelza are walking um, in 501 uh, reminded me of the scene when um, they're walking back from the Pilchards and, uh, you know, that beautiful sunset and, you know, the little kissy, kissy smoochy face and, you know, the whole nine, nine, nine yards. And, you know, we see that again with Ross and Demelza um, walking along the cliffs um it it just it just makes me melt all over the place (laughs) i love this show okay so our next email was from georgette i hope that's how you pronounce it and i wasn't too french hi ladies i found your podcast a few weeks ago because i was so confused about season two (laughs) i've read the books one through eight but was still unsettled about several issues. I found your podcast so enlightening and it helped me get over my confusion. Mostly why Ross stayed with Demelza after the incident. I know the times were I know the times were different in those days, but many men had mistresses. I needed your insight to help me through. Thank you for continuing the podcast. I so enjoy your views, even though sometimes you have differing views. Much appreciation for all your wonderful work that is needed to get these done. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rita, for everything that you do um, on these podcasts. Everybody send me gifts. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, new listener, Diana. Hello. Welcome. Um, I so enjoyed the second episode of series five. It was totally engrossing from beginning to end and moved along almost seamlessly. The scenes from Cornwall served to highlight the intrigue in London and the balance between the two locations was very well judged. The effect of the loss on Elizabeth, of Elizabeth on George and Jeffrey Charles was so well acted and depicted and seeing the ghost of Elizabeth was such a touching reminder of how much uh, Hayda had contributed to the series. Huge congratulations to all concern, concerned in the production. I was also struck by how subtly Eleanor has matured Demelza. Eleanor's acting is coming from the heart and a place of confidence. P.S. If it wasn't for Aiden's wig, I'm sure some of the critics would have awarded it five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Telling you that wig, man. Oof. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, my God. Uh, We got uh, our final email was uh, Other Michelle. She has a season five theory she wants to share with us. Um, Elizabeth's bottle of medicine will reappear in a big way. 
There is a reason why it's keeping it. I don't think he will tell Ross about it because, you know, later books suggest Ross never finds out about it. He may, however, tell George about it to treat George's hallucinations. Telling George will help him realise that his suspicions about Ross and Elizabeth were correct and that Elizabeth lied to him repeatedly, regardless of her reasons, so that George can finally see that Elizabeth was not what he imagined and that he did not cause her death. Elizabeth chose to take the medicine to perpetuate the lie about the, the identity of Valentine's father. I don't think that Elizabeth ever considered the possibility that the medicine could harm or kill her and her child. Maybe if George gets more honest picture of Elizabeth, he can put his own conduct slash actions into perspective, get rid of the guilt he feels for hounding her to death and let her go. In the later books, George knows that Ross is Valentine's father and he does not have idealized memories of Elizabeth. At least not that I can, not that I can recall. Just a theory, what do you think? Hmm, I don't know. I fucking hope this is true. I would like somebody to realize that Elizabeth was a liar. <laughs> yeah, I I think that it would be it would be nice to to see that you know there was a really heavy manipulations um, with regards to the whole uh, Valentine parentage, etc. Um, and you know it's been a while since I have read the the latter books. Um, but do you think George knew that Valentine was Ross's child? It's so ambiguous. I can't say either way. Yeah. But then I feel that way about everybody, like Demelza, Ross, mm-hmm. Valentine, George. They're all living in yeah. this sort of dubious, pretending yeah. that George is his father, but also acknowledging that Ross is sometimes, and I'm so confused. Yeah. And the thing is, is that, you know, in... <laughs> Hashtag in the books. Um, the question of Valentine's um, parentage is not something that is really discussed at all. Um, you know, nobody, you know, we we wound up having it become a major part of uh, this uh, modern adaptation. Um, but it's not even something that is discussed. Uh, you know, and we saw in the 70s adaptation, no it's not really mentioned all that much beyond, you know, George having his suspicions, but then having those discounted by Elizabeth. Um, it's not something that is really super delved into uh, like it has been in the modern adaptation. Um, and so, you know, and, and to go even further when we, and I Spoilers for the books, um, but Coming when we, yeah, when we see Valentine as a uh, young man, um, he doesn't even physically resemble Ross. Um, it's said that he he resembles um, more like um, he resembles Elizabeth, but his personality is much more like uh, Ross's father's. Um, so yeah, there's not a whole lot of physical resemblance uh, between Ross and Valentine. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, we can hope, but I just don't think it's going to happen because of the way that yeah. they interpret Elizabeth in the show, which yeah. is saintly Elizabeth yeah. coming down from heaven to smile gracefully mm-hmm. at her son. Yeah. And I have to say, they kept all of this 
um, Elizabeth hallucination stuff really on the down low. Really? We didn't hear, I, I, we didn't hear anything about um, Hayda filming these scenes. I, su- I suspected that something might be up when she abruptly came back from California and then like hid away. Like she was mm. not on social media just when Paul Doc was mm-hmm. filming. So I was like, ooh, someone's uh... going to be a ghost. <laughs> oh, look at you being all smart and detective-y, you know? Damn. Not everybody is up know. on the social media like stalking Hyder Reed, admittedly. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Okay. Anyway. So it's time for wig talk. Can we wig talk? Can we wig talk? Talk about where it's growing. Yeah. Now apparently the wig fell off Aiden's head this week again. <laughs> and I missed it. Uh, which scene was that again? And also, oh. how is this happening in 2019, the year of our Lord? I know, right? Uh, you know, there are there are ways to make sure that your wig stays on and does not get snatched at all. You know, um, so I, I, it's a, it's a travesty, just a freaking travesty. The side part is killing me. I think like what it just, it looks like he's been like, it's been brushed to death whenever I, um, cause I have curls that are quite similar to Aiden's. If I brush mm-hmm. my hair when it's curly, it will end up looking like that travesty. And that is why I don't. You just don't, okay? It's like whoever was in charge of that wig has never seen curls in their life and does not know how to deal with them, and I'm angry at them. Yeah, yeah. We ain't bring back the curls, damn it. Bring them back. Or just, like, let them have short hair. It's the Regency <laughs> period. Short hair was very popular. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, why am I so angry this week? No idea. And you know, honest, yeah, honestly, you know, I would have been absolutely fine if they had just let him run around with his real hair. He has cute hair. Let him. He's got he's got great hair. Why? Okay. Who do we write this letter to? (laughs) I know, I know. Dear BBC One, we are angry about the wig. Hashtag stop the wig. (laughs) Hashtag pure wig drama. Yes. Okay, um, well, let's dig into our preview of episode 503. So let's listen to the trailer. Accident! Accident at Wheel Penny! Up to 20 minors missing, some of them children. For a man of Sir George's stubbornness, a more robust approach is required. I see no reason to account to you for the welfare of my grandson. Turn away! No, 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 no! Is it not a slave's duty to perform as directed? Where did you get that? The gun. Oh my god. What's the deal with the gun? Nothing good. Uh, No, nothing good at all. Uh, The description from Radio Times reads as follows. Hansen's presence in Cornwall raises suspicion. And as Demelza wrestles with how best to equip the community to look after itself, Morwenna lends herself to the cause and finds new hope. Yay! A (laughs) storyline! I know, I know, right? Uh, Jeffrey Charles and Cecily's relationship continues to blossom, but George's sanity continues to deteriorate 
and Carrie struggles under mounting responsibilities. The Ennises look to the challenge of the county's high society by hosting a ball to introduce the Vispars before disaster strikes and Ross and Ned must spring into action together. Oh, I think we know what the disaster is by everybody screaming, yes. the mine, the mine. <laughs> and all of the pictures that we saw from far, far away um, that are all kind of surrounding the, the whole mine situation. So I know. So we're, we're going to see some drama, drama at the wheel, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so what are you looking most forward to next week? I want to see more Jeffrey Charles and Cecily, actually. <laughs> I really enjoy their broom romance and of course more Jeremy and Clowence and Clowence is dull yes. oh god aren't they cute oh, oh my god I love seeing those kids they break my heart though when little Jeremy was, when Ned was like who's this soldier and then Jeremy stepped forward and said uh, Jeremy watch it shh <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, also, uh, there looks to be some drama brewing at the mine, like I just said. And I thought I saw Rosina in one of those stills. Did you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, could it be we'll start to see something lovely for our dear Sam? Maybe like a love triangle with Rosina, Tess. Rosina and Tess, mm-hmm. you know, because we know our Sam likes the bad girls. And he likes blondes, apparently. <laughs> oh, bring back Emma for me, please. <laughs> um, we also have a new design up on our merch store. It's oh! an I was born to pull turnip shirt. Well, I say shirt, but you can also get it on a mug or a sticker or anything you want, really. Um, if you're interested, <laughs> then head on over to www.tpublic.com slash user slash pole dark fan cast funds from the store help cover costs for hosting this damn podcast so we could really appreciate <laughs> the support and you get a fun t-shirt out of it so do it there we go okay um all right so i'm gonna do the pull dark card game question today so i have oh god i hope i remember um, something a number of cards in my hand Rita, pick a number between one and six. Four. All right, number four. Here we go. Um, Demelza sings a song at Lord Falmouth's house, which includes the line, life is short, but blank is long. Love. What's the answer? Love. Ow. Well, damn, all right, you got that one straight out of the gate. Yeah, because I remember being horrified during that scene, so it's imprinted in my brain. Stop singing, Demelza. <laughs> Okay, um, uh, the other questions on the card, um, when Dr. Ennis enlists in the Navy, Britain is at war with which European country? Wrong. Mm-hmm. And the third question, Demelza nurses Francis, Elizabeth, and Jeffrey Charles when they have putrid throat, which results in her catching the disease. True or false? True. Yep. Three for three. Three for three. I hope you all played along with us and were <laughs> equally like, this is quite a simple question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Have you seen the show? Yes. You will remember this. <laughs> and if you are as obsessed as we are, you'll know all of the answers on all of these cards. Yeah. I don't think that they're designed for... People who have podcasts about this show. People, yeah, and pe people like us. No. Uh -uh. 
Okay, well, um, that is all from us this week, and we'll be back next week recapping and discussing episode 503. Until then, follow us on social media, where we keep you guys up to date with new pr- promotional photos, cast interviews, and other general pole dark news. <laughs> we are at Poldark Fancast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to be read out in the inbox section, then email us at poldarkfancast at gmail.com or go to our message page on Tumblr. And remember, you can now listen to us on Spotify. So uh, remember to follow us on there and wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Come here, baby. Feeling bad